Welcome to the Jackie Service Show. I'm Jackie Service, where we are talking all things people strategy, entrepreneurship, and how hiring the right humans will unlock the next phase of growth in your business. As a former corporate VP of HR, my life completely shifted when I learned I had a brain tumor. From this moment forward, I knew that there was more. I dove headfirst into healing, mindset work, and spirituality. And from this space, my entrepreneur journey was born. Now I am a people strategist and founder of Serve Recruitment Agency, a boutique recruitment firm that helps scaling companies hire aligned leaders for growth. In this podcast, I'm going to share about my business journey, entrepreneurship, leadership, and how hiring the right humans unlocks massive potential. Welcome to the show. Are you confused about hiring? You're not alone. Majority of leaders struggle to figure out who they need, in what roles, and when, and how these people will have the greatest impact on the growth of their business. This is why we created People Strategy Sessions to do a deep dive into your business and help you build a clear roadmap on the talent you need to drive sustainable growth. We dive into your greater why, where you are today in your business, where you want to go in your business from a growth standpoint, and ultimately, who do you need to enable that growth overall? For more information, please send an email to Jackie at JackieService.com or feel free to reach out at JackieService across all platforms. Welcome back to another episode of the Jackie Service Show. I am so excited for this one. This is a new friend of mine who I have recently met in an elite mastermind group that we're both a part of. And I am so excited to get to know you better and to get to know your story through the means of this podcast, because my goodness, this woman is not only a founder, but a CEO of Shoppable, which we're going to hear a lot more about. And I'm so excited to hear about your journey as a woman in tech and how you've built the empire that is shoppable. So welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to dive into this one. We always start, as you guys know, with some rapid fire questions. It's just an easy way for everybody to get to know you a little bit better and for you to share a little bit more about philosophy and outlook and kind of who you are before we hop into your story. Sounds great. Amazing. Okay. Where are you from originally? Uh, born and raised in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Okay. Midwest. Midwest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have, um, I have some good friends in the Midwest and they'll send me, they don't live in the Midwest anymore, but they'll send me some funny sayings about just Midwest, Midwestern sayings. So yeah, we have, There's I feel close. like Midwest is as close to Canadian as you can get. That's true. Some people are often confused by my accent as it shifts with certain words. And they're like, are you Canadian or Southern? I can't quite put my, my finger on it. <laughs> I've, I've, I lived in um, the Southeast for a couple of years when I was working for PepsiCo. And I would say a, as a Canadian and y'all in the same sentence. And people were, were very confused. Yeah. They were like, are you Canadian or Southern? And so, yeah, I've, I've experienced something very similar. Exactly. Very I good. love it. And where is home now? Where are you living now? Uh, New York. Right in Manhattan. Whereabouts in, in New York? Uh, Jer- Jersey city, Jersey city. Oh my gosh. It's an incredible like- area. Yeah, I love it. It's it's great and great place to be really close to the city. I take a five minute ferry into the city and 
um, great for raising a family and, and still being close proximity. Yeah. Proximity is so important, especially when you're building businesses, I'm sure we'll get into that, but being able to have kind of a neighborhood feel and then being able to get into the city must be nice. Yeah, exactly. We love it. I love that. A book that you either go back to all the time and reread or something that you love to recommend to other individuals who are growing and building companies. Um, one that comes to mind is never eat alone, which mm. is by Keith Ferrazzi. And I just think it's, it's such, I, I, I read it many years ago. I think I read it in college. Um, and I just think it's such an important book, especially whether you're a business owner or you're an entrepreneur or you're at the time I was in, in college, but then I started working in sales and, you know, so much is about your relationships and your network. So I, I w- would say that one. Which is also probably core to why you live in New York City, because there's likely always somebody to have a meal with, and you probably don't eat alone often. It's so true. It's it's so true. And I, I love that. have a meal with and every single night, you know, multiple choices of networking events and, and things like that. Too. Amazing. Amazing. And final one on the rapid question is who's a mentor that has really unlocked perspective or helped you as you've grown and scaled your own business? I mean, there's so, there's so many, I mean, I have to say what's um, one person that's, that's top of mind for me, I would say is um, Alexandra Wilkes Wilson. She's one of the co-founders of Guilt Group. She founded Glam Squad. Um, she's at Clarity Capital now. She's, you know, serial entrepreneur. And I met her pretty much right when I moved to New York and um, tracked her down because I wanted to be in her vicinity. And anyway, she's helped me quite a bit at um, all stages of the business and and different challenges and making introductions to key brands and retailers that I needed to, to get shoppable to the next stage. So she, she comes to mind for sure. And then the other one I would add would be Dee Solomon, who has, is a, um, more on the, the publishing and media side of things, mm-hmm. but also really opened key doors for me early on and provided just valuable feedback in crafting the offering and, you know, to the tune of it, the exact publisher speak that she would say, don't say it that way. You have to say it this way, or they're going to immediately, you know, um, dismiss what you're saying if you don't use their lingo. <laughs> so mm. help me get, get in with, wow. with crowd too, which I would have had no, no idea. <laughs> that's, that's potent though. If you think about what you just said and what I heard you say is these two individuals who are mentors of yours, one of the core that was at both of them is they both opened doors for you. They both helped you continue to step into the next level. And that's been true for me. And and when I think about back to the mentors that have been really influential in my life, they supported me and stood beside me, but they were also the first to say my name in a room I wasn't in or to make an introduction that frankly, they didn't need to make. And just out of kind of love, kindness, respect for, for what I was doing. And I'm sensing the same thing for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, 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 that's key. And that those introductions can really make your business. And and 100%, which is why you should never eat alone, because if you have connections and relationships, that's what we're all doing. It's we're in the people business in multiple ways, inclusive of building, building relationships. So true. I love that. 
Okay, let's hear about the story of Shoppable. So I've done my research, I've taken a look, but for the listeners, I'd love them to get a sense of how did we go from Wisconsin Midwest girl to heart of the city, New York, and what have been all the twists and turns along the way to go from ideation to a reputable brand that's serving so many massive Fortune 500 companies? Yeah. So for, for, for the start of it, I mean, really, so from, I guess, rewinding to, to Wisconsin, I, um, you know, stayed there through high school. And then after I graduated, I already had known for many years that I really wanted to get into business. And I didn't know exactly how I thought I wanted to start a company. Um, but I knew I wanted to get into business and, as you know, nice as the 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 town of Lacrosse, Wisconsin is, it just wasn't, you know, the metropolis of business opportunities, and and it didn't feel like the 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 right place for me to stay. So I wanted to go to a larger city, and um, you know, also the cold of Wisconsin had me thinking California might be the best place to go. So I ended up going to school in San Francisco, um, lived out there. Um, went to school and um ended up this is kind of a weird thing to say but I'm but I ended up not feeling super challenged at the school I was in so I ended up applying to the London School of Economics and moving to London which I did for um you know for about a year and um and then I couldn't get a visa to stay so I ended up moving back to San Francisco I tried to stay in London and um was um, hoping to to work at, at Google. I was trying to interview with with them in their UK office, and it didn't it didn't end up working. Um, but I was very interested in tech. So what I was um, as I moved back to San Francisco, I finished up my last semester, and um, I was um, interning at this tech company that was called Military.com. And um, found it like literally on like a job board at, at the school, just kind of ended up there because I just moved back from London. And I um, had heard that they had just gone through an acquisition recently. So I'm like, okay, I want to talk to this founder and um, just understand what it's like to be, be an entrepreneur. And in talking, you know, I, so I sent him an email and I'm like, this guy's probably not going to even read my email, but whatever. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> sent him an email and just said, can I, you know, grab a coffee with you or, or just chat with you, you know, at some point in my future, like I'm an intern at your company, but at some point in my future, I want to start a company. So I ended up um, going and talking to him and he said, if you're not ready to start a company, cause I was graduating in a couple of months. He's like, if you're not ready to start a company yet, why don't you come and work for me? Because I'm starting a new company and I'd love for you to be on my founding team. Mm. Um, and, um, I suppose I, I skipped a step, which is he, he then said, um, why don't you, he's like, sign this NDA. If you're at all interested, sign this NDA, I'm going to give you our pitch deck, take a look at it. And, um, you let me know what you think. And then he invited me to a meeting with his other three co-founders. I wasn't, I, I mean, I was, you know, the most junior person of the company, the other three people were all MBAs, you know, execs. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I need to show up to this meeting with, with the great, um, questions and comments and, you know, want to, want to, um, impress everybody as the most junior person. So anyway, I did that and then ended up joining that startup, 
which led me to the opportunity to be able to really learn firsthand from um, Chris Michael, who's a serial, who's the serial entrepreneur. And when he started a second company and I knew, okay, he had already done this before and he was going to, to do it again. And I was joining when it was literally a PowerPoint. So he was going out to raise money. It was very much the beginning. And it was such great experience for me to kind of go through those, you know, those early days and even, you know, the medium days all the way through till when that company was acquired and have that experience as, as an entrepreneur before I started it on my own. So that's kind of the, the, the background before I ended up taking my own entrepreneurial leap. But um, that's what led me up to just before I started the business. Mm, I love that. It's like getting a front row seat into how a, how a founder thinks, what are the, what are the questions they're asking? What are the, you know, having been through, it sounds like you went from PowerPoint to acquisition and seeing what that cycle looks like in terms of when we get investments or fundraising, where do we put that money first? How do we build this to ideation? When are we, you know, I, I work with a lot of founders around like, when, when do we build team and when do we scale team at what stage in the cycle do we do that? And so I'll go in and support them in that thinking as kind of one aspect of all the aspects of founders thinking about, there's so many different areas that they're thinking about. Yeah. I'm curious for you through that experience, was there one or a couple of things that really stood out that you have such gratitude for? Because then when you did it yourself, they were either lessons of like, Hey, I would never do that. And I'm not going to do make that same mistake. Or I'm so glad I saw that because now I can build on the same foundation. Were there a few things that stick out? Yeah, absolutely. So for, for, for me, it was on just these huge challenges, you know, and again, I was the most junior person at the company when it first started. Um, I think we were five, five people. And so I was very green in my experience, but we had, uh, we came back from a weekend Monday morning and suddenly had a fraud problem and just like a massive fraud problem. And I'm looking at this and, and I'm like, something's, and I was looking in our systems and going through it. I'm like, something's really suspicious. And then we realized it's fraud. Anyway, things started escalating really quickly. And from where I was sitting, I'm like, is this the end? Is this, is this, this seems like a really big problem. Is this whole company over? Is this, the, is this, you know, something we can't come back from? Um, we're sending all of, cause we are sending all this fraud unintentionally to our clients. And, um, and anyway, so we got everybody into a room. We got around the, the around the boardroom uh, table, um, looked into the problem, figured out the different issues, and then we worked on a solution. And it was getting the right people around the table to have the right conversation. And what I really learned from that is. And, and people say this to me now all the time. So they're like, nothing seems to rock you. <laughs> they're like, there could be something really stressful going on. And people will say like, I don't know how you're handling it without like even seeing like, like anything's going on at all. And, you know, so I think that was a key takeaway for me is just getting the right people around the table and making sure that you don't focus too much on the problem. You need to identify the problem. And so that, you can, so that you can then shift your focus to the solution. And how do we move forward from here? How do we, you know, in that case, make good to our clients? How do we be upfront with them? Look, this happened. We're really sorry. We don't want to put it on them. 
how do we deal with that? And then how do we build so it doesn't um, doesn't happen again? And what we ended up building in that particular instance, we built this whole fraud prevention system that ended up being one of the main reasons that it, the business was acquired later. later. Wow. So this problem became essentially one of the key um, things for the acquisition later. Oh, I love that. I also love, gosh, I'm sure as a founder, you've experienced this. There's enough hiccups every day that can feel like, oh gosh, is this the end? If you allow your brain to go there from a cycling standpoint and that core lesson of let's just figure out who the right people are to put around this table so we can find the solution. My gosh, what a gift that is. And not just to yourself, but also to your team to witness that and to see that, hey, we can figure everything out here if we just get the right minds around the table and and collaboratively, collaboratively work together. Exactly. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Now the story of shoppable. So is this an idea you have? Is this a need you see in the market? Like where did it even come from? Where did it go from ideation to today? Yeah. So with shoppable, I started it because of a personal frustration and um, you know, it's a problem that 99% of people have had, which is essentially you come across a great product, you want to purchase it, but you can't, it's not shoppable. It's not viable. So many people will just give up right then and there. If they see something and they can't buy it, they're like, forget it. There's too much friction. I'm not going to waste my time. But, um, there's a portion of us that will then go into Google, you know, or Amazon, try to describe the product, or you try to guess who makes it. Um, click around to try to track it down. And that's what I was trying to do because we had just sold this last startup and I had moved into a one bedroom apartment with no roommate for the very first time, which, you know, is the first time I had to make my apartment feel like a real home and kind of figure out some idea of interior design. I had no, no clue. I felt like at that point. And anyway, so I was going on these different websites and I'd find inspirational images where like, okay, that's great. I want my house to look like that. And of course I had to buy everything. So I'm going back and forth. I'm like, there's this whole experience sucks. (laughs) At one point I was sitting there with my credit card by my keyboard, trying to buy, I don't know if it was a sofa or curtains or what it was. And I'm like, I cannot find this anywhere. And, and I know, I'm like, this product is sitting in some retailer's warehouse somewhere. They're paying for it. And this magazine's website that I was on, I'm like, and they spent a lot of money with their photography and getting the, these beautiful demand generating um, content, but they're not getting any money um, from, you know, from this. And I'm also not getting the product. So I'm like, this is a situation where, where all three parties are losing and all three parties could win, but I'm like, then I kind of did that entrepreneurial thing. I was just like, so what is, so why are we all losing and what's the problem here? Mm-hmm. Like, like, there has to be some technology that basically can bring retailer products to publishers and to content sites and be able to integrate them in directly so that they may be shoppable. <laughs> and there wasn't. And I went down the rabbit hole and I'm like, this seems crazy that doesn't exist. And and I was, you know, first looking at it from a consumer standpoint, and then just curious as kind of, you know, someone working in technology at that point, and ended up um, just doing a ton of research and being like, wow, if this doesn't exist, this seems like it can be a really, really big idea. And, you know, can I essentially go out and create partnerships with 
all of the major retailers and brands to integrate their catalog, digitally speaking. So I have this massive catalog of products and then I can create a single universal checkout that connects into their systems and then create technology that enables the shoppable layer across any form of digital content. Mm. And that's what I, you know, really what, what I did at shoppable and um, you know, the, the initial product has evolved as all, you know, tech products do over, over time. So when I first launched it, I will say that I initially launched it as a destination. And I thought all of these, I thought we could have one checkout, one um, product catalog, but all on one site. And then all of the other sites would redirect their links to this one site. And um, it would be better from what they currently have because they'd have to be linking to multiple different retailers. But after, um, getting a friend of mine introduced me to actually I probably shouldn't say the publisher's name but let's just say one of the two largest publishers in the country friend of mine got me in the door with them and they said first of all you've created the holy grail of content and commerce it's like thank you great to hear that we're on the right Mm -hmm. (laughs) so early client you know potential customer feedback was good um but then the the editor-in-chief of this magazine said but She's like, I'm fine sending you the traffic for the checkouts and stuff there. But she's like, really, what we want is to license your technology and put it on our site. Mm. Because, you know, we're creating all, you know, we're, we're trying to get all of our traffic to our site. They're also monetizing through ad, through ads. So they want to drive impressions. They're like, we really don't want to send traffic away from, from the website at all, if we can help it. So they said, can we, you know, can we? license this technology and if not that's fine we'll send you the links um, but eventually we just want you to know that that's the direction we'd want to go so I said you know I have paused and I'm thinking okay that's not exactly what my business is but it was still really early day so I'm I'm getting that customer feedback which uh you know is, is so critical so I said give me 30 days and I'll get back to you because I'm like I needed to to me it felt like a critical point and it, you know, it was spoiler alert <laughs> to decide, am I going to, you know, um, change my focus from being this destination site where really I would have had to be focusing on driving consumers to the site mm-hmm. or changing the business to be B2B and then licensing and distributing the, t- the technology out everywhere else. So I took 30 days, um, ran different metrics, talked to some other publishers, other potential customers, um, talked to retailers and brands. And anyway, ended up making that that shift to then focus on building it as a SaaS business so that we can license out the technology and scale it externally versus from a destination site. And I'm so glad that I did it because it really, it just solved so many problems that mm-hmm. um, we weren't even aware of at the time, honestly, when, when I was first starting it. Mm, isn't like just the fact that that feedback gave you a chance to pause. And once again, it sounds like probably in that 30 days, you pulled together the minds that needed to think through it of like, Hey, if we were to do this, what would have to look like and what, what would have to change and how would we have to evolve? I mean, that can be really difficult as an entrepreneur who has this idea in mind. And it almost becomes like, you know, um, a child of like, Hey, it's, this is something I'm birthing into the world. And I'm so fixated on this one way, but then we go out into the world and we get that feedback 
And I just appreciate the fact that once again, you're taking that pause moment to likely bring around the greatest minds that you have to be able to think through what's possible if this is a kind of pivot and direction that we start going down. Yep, absolutely. I love this. So who do you, who does Shoppable serve today? Like give us maybe a real life example of who's coming to you to license the tech to then enhance the experience of their consumer. Yeah. So we, I mean, we work with, we license the technology to um, publishers. We license it to consumer packaged good companies that are not direct to consumer brands. So for example, we power Revlon.com. Mm. So, you know, Revlon's a brand that probably all of your listeners have, uh, have heard of before. They sell in Walmart, Target, Walgreens, Rite Aids, CVS, many others. And, but they don't, they don't have a direct consumer business and they don't want to create a channel conflict. So they use Shoppable's technology to embed a shoppable experience on their site. Mm. And then our checkout allows them to sell really it's their own branded products, but they're selling them with, through their, these preferred retailers by using shoppable's checkout. So by, by moving their checkout essentially to Revlon properties. So it lets them have this fully branded Revlon experience to the point where we call it D to C light, because it Mm -hmm. is like a direct to consumer experience, except for the fact that they are not fulfilling the uh, products and they don't have to be the merchant of record. So that's, that's one example, but we also work with publishers that want to make their ad shoppable or create shoppable content um, we do a lot of shoppable gift guides. So mm-hmm. you know, this time of year, a lot of people are working on putting together gift guides, whether they're a creator working with the brands or they're on the publishing side, um, you know, that they'll use a new product we have called instant shop that we launched last year. And that lets, you know, that lets anyone really curate the products that they want. It lets them brand the whole experience publish it and um, start earning commissions or they can set up um, advertiser kind of placement fees, mm-hmm. but on everything that they, they sell from their shop um, without any engineers, which is really cool. Super cool. I love that. Thank you for sharing. And you're right. Uh, we were talking about this off camera that, you know, Christmas in July is real when you are in marketing and you are building, you're already thinking about the holiday season and starting to build out gift guides and different catalogs and, it's so, so timely that you're launching this to help a lot of your partners and likely prospect partners to bring this fully to life experience, like from an experience standpoint as well. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it just makes, you know, for, it, it's funny because, you know, going back to the, to the story, our very first customer that we ended up launching with, it was not the company that I was talking to. They ended up like just moving too slow, um, which is another kind of nugget for anyone in the really early days. <laughs> Don't rely on one potential launch partner because you never know what's going to happen. Um, but our real launch partner ended up being the Wall Street Journal and they launched a gift guide. And this was before we had this instant shop technology. So they used kind of our our original, our literally our original technology and created a luxury gift guide for their website. And it was the first time that they were able to have a single checkout on their website, even though they had curated products from like, they were very high-end products from Neiman Marcus and Saks Fifth Avenue and then very nice coffee table books, I think from Barnes and Noble and, you know, stuff, stuff like that. But it was, it was literally for initially for the holidays was our first launch. 
Oh, I love that. I love that. And great lesson as well to not put all of your eggs in one basket, right? When we're coming to launch season. And I can imagine that when we have a big idea and there's maybe a big name that is interested in what we're doing, it can be very difficult to not get fixated on that big name. How did you, was that a lesson learned for you or did you actually end up having multiple um, brands around launch? It was a lesson learned for, okay. for, for sure. I mean, we um, like, we're so grateful for, for the wall street journal and, and taking a chance on, 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 on us with our, our launch. Um, we had two other, I mentioned kind of this, this, um, mentor of mine helped opened a lot of these doors early on. So we had two other, um, large publishers that both were like, we're going to be the, your launch partner. We really want to be first. It's so important to us to be first and be seen as innovative and, you know, and those kinds of things. And they were both really, I mean, wall street journal is huge too, but these were also really big names. So I think, you know, I made the mistake of, um, one, just maybe it was just a little naive. If someone says they're going to do something, I thought they were going to do it. Um, and also just did not understand how slow big companies really move. And, um, so anyway, so I think I probably lost a good six months or so with one of them because they, I, I kept thinking that, okay, they're almost, they're almost there. They're almost ready. And then I'm waiting and I'm, you know, these are new relationships that I'm trying to kind of um, manage at the same time. And in any way, we ended up just losing, a, losing. I mean, six months is an enormous amount of time mm-hmm. in these days. So then I started realizing, okay, I can't get, I'm not going to guarantee anyone being the launch partner and I don't necessarily need to have one. So let me try to get you know, go after multiple mm. and, um, and that strategy ended up working and, you know, we launched with a paying customer, which is, which is great. And, and a paying customer with a name that likely also provided credibility to open up more doors. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, 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 another kind of key lesson with that too, is, is exactly the, um, the, the big name like that is getting, getting them, you know, they worked together with us as a partner to help onboard some of our early retailer relationships. So we had at at Shoppable at the time, I think we maybe had 10 retailers or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Now we have hundreds and about a thousand maybe. Wow. Um, But we had, we had, we had a very small list at that, at that point in time. So they, you know, they, we created this co-branded sheet that explained what we did. And then they actually went out to really it was their advertiser relationships and helped bring on some of our early retail partners by saying, look, we're launching this gift guide where our tech provider is shoppable. If you want to be included in it, you need to be on their platform. Here's how you do it. Meet Heather, you know, and, and anyway, so it was really a, um, a jump start to have that type of partner that can make mm. those introductions, especially when you're in that in a marketplace and you you have that chicken and egg problem, Tim. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing. I love hearing the story of Shoppable. Give us a little bit of context. So, how many years has Shoppable been around for? I mean, you just shared we went from you know maybe ten to a list of a thousand. Like, what are some of the big milestones that you've you've been really proud of as a founder that Shoppable has lived through? Ooh, um, yeah, so we've been around for 12 years and it's incredible. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, 
when the early ones, I started the business in San Francisco and then ended up moving it to New York after I had a very successful business trip to New York, decided on my second day here, I'm like, I'd need to be based in this city. So I would say kind of making that shift to New York was an early um, milestone. And for for that, just to pause on, on that, um, it was about you know, making the decision that the company needed to be where the industries were that it really needed, that we needed to work with. And it seemed at, at the time, I mean, the New York tech scene now is, is massive, but 12 years ago, it was not, it was very small. It was a whole Silicon Alley thing. Not that, not that big at all. Uh, a couple of companies like Foursquare and Guild Group and, you know, whatnot, but not a lot. Um, and, and anyway, it seemed very counterintuitive to be in the Bay area with a tech company and say, oh, I'm going to move to New York. <laughs> but, um, you know, but it, advice that, that I've given other founders and some of my investors have occasionally had me talk to founders that they're, that they're potentially going to invest in about where their business should be located because, you know, at Shoppable, we work with these key New York industries, publishing, advertising, even, you know, now fin um, finance, fintech, um, um, the agencies, the consumer packaged good companies, you know, all primarily New York and the ones that are not New York based come through New York pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. And we weren't in San Francisco. And we also were not getting the credibility on phone calls being when people would ask, where are you based? And it's a San Francisco. I'd hear people's the tone of their voice shift. And I'm sure if we weren't doing Zoom calls 12 years ago, but I'm sure if we were, I'd see body language shift mm -hmm. as well. But I could tell them like, this isn't, this isn't, it shouldn't be based here. So I ended up moving it to New York. So that, um, and I really don't think we would be around today had I stayed in San Francisco, because I don't think we would have gotten the early partnerships that we needed to get off the ground. Wow. Um, so I think that ended up being a really, really important decision for us. So um, it was only, you know, two, two people at the time. So it wasn't like we were moving, you know, massive team, but it was still pretty, very meaningful. Um, so I would say that was one of the, the pivotal moments, obviously making the decision to switch to B2B was, mm -hmm. was a moment for, for us, a launch with the Wall Street Journal, a huge moment for us. Um, and I would say, once we hit, when we first hit a hundred million products in the catalog, that kind of blew my mind. Mm. Like, is that number right? <laughs> I think was my reaction. The thought of having one couch in a catalog that was in a warehouse somewhere that I couldn't get access to is now a hundred, you say a hundred thousand? A hundred million. Oh, oh my gosh. Is now a hundred million products that well, somebody who's sitting on that couch has now have, has access to with their credit card. Yes. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. And I mean, and then now today where we just hit 400. <laughs> so over here clapping for you. That's amazing. Thank you. So it's still growing. I mean, and it, it still kind of blows my mind because there's still like, we're still talking to brands and merchants that, that we're not working with yet. And even in this, this 400 million, we're like, okay, you need to join. <laughs> you need to get your products in here so we can make them shoppable. But um, but yeah, those were key, key milestones um, um, as well. I would think, I would say another one that I thought was pretty interesting. And I think, you know, um, I, entrepreneurs kind of dream of, um, but it was the first time that a 
company had reached out with interest in acquisition and it was oh. pretty early on and it kind of stopped me because I wasn't expecting it at, you know, at that point in time. And I thought, oh, I've created enough value in, because you build like, you know, as an entrepreneur, we build things from nothing. So you're literally day one, you have absolutely nothing. So when this, this CEO um, of this company reached out and, and expressed interest in acquisition, it like really made me pause. Cause I'm like, I've created enough value that someone's interested in buying. And, <laughs> wow. you know, and it just like, it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, okay, that's something I wasn't ready to, I wasn't ready to sell, but it was really meaningful to be like, okay, that is a milestone that, you know, you really kind of dream of as entrepreneurs is just creating, you know, you dream of that, that launch and bringing it mm-hmm. to, to the market. Then you dream about like, okay, is it, something that's that's valuable to even bigger companies around you too and I thought that was pretty pretty exciting too Mm, love that yeah thank you for sharing those are I love the milestones and just hearing about some of these big unlocks that have happened over the 12 years and 12 years in itself to continue to grow and expand and go from this ideation of cannot buy this couch for my one-bedroom apartment to 400 million products on your site is just, is just incredible. I love, love hearing that, that story and that, um, just the massive amount of success that you've had. I, I'm curious at this stage, 12 years in, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Are there any challenges you as founder, CEO, women in tech, any challenges that are constantly there for you that you're still working through? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the, the answer is yes. I would say it, you know, it varies depending upon the night. <laughs> fair, <laughs> very fair. <laughs> depending upon Says what the two moms here that have kids home and we're locking ourselves in our office to get things done. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I would say it, it depends on depends on the time, but I mean, for sometimes it's about, um, you know, and I think this is really relevant for this conversation too. Sometimes it's about people and it's about, you know, um, you know, it's important to me to always do right by, by our people and try to, um, every, since the beginning, every single person we've hired has been so important. And I take so much responsibility in making, you know, making that hire and, and for that individual. And every time we added a new person to the team, it, you know, was a big deal. Um, you know, when keeping, um, um, helping people get to the next stage of their career and, and things like that, I think is, is something that I want to, I, I will sometimes like take up more, you take up a lot of space in, in my head about, okay, how do we, you know, help this person get to what their goals are and, um, you know, and, and how do we solve this, this other, other challenge and, and having the right talent for the, the different challenges that you're facing at the time and, and things like that, I feel like can be um, something that is just spinning in the back of my head sometimes. And just, yeah, trying to, to always do, um, you know, you have to do what's, what's right for your business and do right for, for each of the individuals too. And I think that's, that's something that one of the first things that come to mind. Yeah. It's a balancing act always when it comes to humans. And at the end of the day, you know, one of the things that Dan Martell, who's the program that Heather and I met in 
is the coach. He talks a lot about having dreams big enough that your employees' dreams can be a part of. And so constantly up-leveling your level of thinking as you bring in more skilled expertise, executive level hires has been something that's been really interesting for me to just continue to drive forward. So I'm working through that one as well, as I start to think through, you know, building the next level of my organization as well. I'm curious for you, if you think about team today, is your team primarily internal? Do you have a lot of contractors and people that support you? What does the dynamic of your team look like? And how has hiring the right humans unlocked sustainability for you? Mm. We're So we're primarily um, in-house New York-based, um, but we, yeah, we have a handful of, of contractors. I would say, um, you know, hiring is tough. Hiring is really tough. Um, I think we've made some great hires. I think we've also made, made some mistakes and, and, and learned, um, from that, from that process, but having, um, especially having a great executive team, I think is, is critical. Um, you know, one new addition that, that I added recently kind of through, you know, through, um, advice from, from our mutual, uh, coach here is, you know, adding an editing and um, adding an assistant mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and I don't know, I, I, you know, I think different entrepreneurs have blocks around that. And I kind of ha- have a block around it where I feel like, do I need an assistant? And I also, you know, do I have enough for them to do? And is it just easier for me to just, to, to just do it versus explain and then hand it off to someone else? So I think that's kind of something that I'm literally working on now. I have a new, new assistant that, joined um, about three weeks ago. So working on getting her up to speed, but um, you know, I'm excited about having that, that position now. And I've kind of wrapped my brain around, okay, I need to offload these things. And then I can be, you know, a a better CEO Mm -hmm. Then I can be a better, um, you know, CEO to my team. I can be a better CEO to our customers, to our partners um, and put my time to better use than some of the other things that I should really be handing off to an admin. So that's just something that I'm really excited about right right now as far as a, a key hire. Yeah, that was a big unlock for me as well. You know, it's, and I had had an executive assistant in-house and after reading Dan's book, Buy Back Your Time, we're going to give, give a little love and a shout out to, uh, to him. Um, it helped me understand how to set that, individual up for success because I had all these one-off things versus ownership of, Hey, you own the calendar. Hey, you own the email and this is your lane and you need to find the expertise in it. And this is truly your ownership. And as soon as I was able to create that, and I remember this unlock moment that happened with my executive assistant and I, I said, you're the protector of my time. Really at the core of it, if you think about how important your role is, you're the protector of my time. People are coming through you to get access to me and you're that filter. As soon as that clicked for her and she realized, you know, she wasn't just a taskmaster, but she actually had a really large stake in the business of how we were going to operate. I just saw her unleash and like this next level version of her came out as well. So I'm excited for you as you onboard your assistant and leverage that philosophy of really 
creating ownership and letting go of the things that are no longer needed on the plate of being a CEO of a very successful company. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I mean, I would say I saw initially saw some, some huge wins when, um, I was just traveling for the last couple of weeks and she happened to onboard about three or four days before I left. So one of the things that I asked her to do was to go through all of our recent, you know, the recent conversations I'd had with um, potential customers. And I asked her to follow up with all of them and see if she could book a meeting for me to touch base with them when I returned to the office. And it was amazing seeing all these emails go out to all these people I've been talking to saying, I'm following up, you know, for my CEO, Heather, booking a time for you. And when I came back to the office, I sat down and had, you know, a, a calendar booked uh, with all these meetings of people that I needed to have, have that touch base with and keep moving the business forward. And it was just, um, it was kind of a light bulb moment. Where I'm like, oh, if I didn't have this assistant, I'd be coming back. And then two weeks later, I'd be reaching out to, to, to these people to follow up or to get back to their emails. And she's jumping in on all of that st- stuff for me saying, oh, let me help you book this. And it, yeah, it just saved so much time already that I'm, it, it's, yeah, it's a huge unlock and I'm um, so glad that, that, that I did it. Last question here for multiple people that are tuning in. I know a lot of founders and CEOs of companies love listening to other founder stories. When you think about your role as CEO, now that you've surrounded yourself with executive team, with an admin, that's just getting onboarded. What do you see your role is? Where do you think your zone of genius is so that you can continue to grow and scale the company at the rate that you want to do that in? I think it's about setting the vision and aligning the team to that vision and the, 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 the projects back from that vision. So, you know, so many, you know, people always at any company they want to know where's the company going? What's next? What are we working towards? What are our goals? And I, you know, it's the CEO's job to set all of those up and, um, and get the team excited about those, those goals and everybody aligned to it. Because when you, when you don't, people can be working and doing, you know, being task masters, mm-hmm. as you put it earlier, but they don't really understand, if they don't understand the big picture, they might be missing context and they might be coding things in a way that doesn't make sense, or they might be communicating if they're the marketing team in a way that doesn't really make sense, or is, you know, the squiggly line way to get to, to, to the, to, to someplace versus the direct line, if they had clear communication and clear direction. So I think that's really important. And, and, um, you know, one of the ways that I tried to, uh, communicate that with my team is, uh, doing quarterly, um, basically we do a quarterly offsite or a Mm -hmm. quarterly, um, kickoff and we all align across all parts of the business um, talk about where we're going. I always kick it off with like, you know, um, CEO update and vision, and then we work into all the different, different parts and how we're doing. And then we look forward with, this is where we're going so that each person, if you ask them, you know, what are we working towards? They should all know. (laughs) That's it. Everyone understands what the vision is rowing the boat in the same direction and it helps anchor, right? It helps anchor yeah. the decision-making day-to-day to say like, hey, is this allowing us to move towards this, this vision and or not? Right. Heather, I could keep talking to you for hours. I think that this is just the beginning of one, a, a beautiful relationship, but two, 
hopefully an opportunity to have you come back in the sh- onto the show um, later on and share more about the successes of Shoppable. And if you are listening in and you have specific questions, let us know. I'll make sure to hold them for a 2.0 interview when Heather comes back. Heather, where can people reach you? What's the best way for them to find you personally and or to learn more about Shoppable? Uh, so I would say about.shoppable.com or you can just go to shoppable.com. Best way to, to learn about Shoppable. You can even book a demo with me directly there. Um, and then I am pretty, I would say most active on LinkedIn and on Instagram at Heather Marie Udo. Fabulous. We will link everything up at the show notes. So you don't have to go far. You can just take a look there and click, give Heather a follow, let her know what stood out to you in the interview today. Heather, beyond grateful for your time and dedication. I love hearing how ideas and an experience that you had can lead to a massively successful organization 12 years later. So major congratulations. And I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me again. All right, guys, we'll see you again on the Jackie Service Show. Thank you for listening in to today's show. If there was a key message that landed with you, please share or send us a direct message on Instagram at Jackie Service and let us know. We love hearing from you. Also, to continue to keep this podcast growing, it would mean the world if you could take a minute and like and rate the show or share it with a friend. Our team is forever grateful. Until next time, we'll see you again on the Jackie Service Show.